Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the book of Hebrews and for the man who wrote it, whoever he is. Thank you, Father, for the wisdom that it gives us and the challenges that it offers us. Thank you, Father, that you are not content to see us stumble. You're not content and satisfied, Father, when we don't live up to the call of our faith. And you are good and gracious and merciful to remind us that you are watching and that you concern yourself with how we live because it matters, Father, what we do with what we've been given in our faith and in our walk. You have not set us free to to sin, Father. You have made us a slave to Christ. And so I thank you, Father, that we have, and in this moment as we study, the reminders of these things. But, Father, let's also acknowledge in our prayer to you as we lift our hearts up that we don't like to be corrected. We don't like it when someone points out our flaws. We react negatively most of the time to critique, to anything that suggests we aren't good the way we are. And so, Father, we acknowledge to you that we, we may not be listening sometimes as you offer us what you do in your word, that we make excuses to ourselves, that we look past the text and think only of our neighbor and their problems and fail to re- remember how much of what we're reading applies to us. So I ask, Lord, that as we go to your word again this morning and listen to this writer in the fifth warning that he gives us, that we would consider soberly, is it us that he's talking about? May we respond in the right way by the Spirit's leading, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And as I just mentioned in the prayer, last week we began the fifth and the final of those warnings that punctuate this letter, that this letter is so well known for. And in this Fifth warning, the message that the writer had for his readers was stark and it's unavoidable. He said, if his readers should seek relief from persecution by returning to Judaism, they were risking something far greater than they were gaining in the process. They might be cut off from not only their fellowship in the church, but from their blessings in eternity, those made available to faithful servants in Christ. Men like Esau stand as a witness against them. That's what he said to them. And as I ended last week, I asked us to consider what it meant for us as well. That is, what does it mean if our flesh or the enemy or the world conspires to tempt us and to take us off track by the myriad of ways it can do so and cause us to abandon our walk at some point in our life to shrink back, to seek the world's approval or the treasure that it offers or the pleasures that it allows for. If we go down that road... Consider that you set yourself on a collision course with the Lord. And he will always win in those moments. But in the course of that collision, in the course of that fight, you're going to put your rewards on the line. You're going to have something in eternity that's lost. So the writer ended last week by saying when we do stumble, when those among us have these trials and are facing this difficulty, it's urgent that we come alongside them and support them and encourage them and pray for them. And teach them and sometimes admonish them if required. Do all that we can to ensure, as the writer says, that we have no one who falls for this deception. Now, that's the beginning of the fifth warning. Boy, if you thought it was bad enough already, that's just the beginning of this fifth warning. Today, we really dive into the heart of it, the heart of what this writer is concerned about. Now, before the writer unfolds the main part of his warning, he's going to preface it here with another contrast, which is where we start this morning, a contrast between the old covenant 
and the new covenant again. He's used these two, of course, many times in the letter. In this case, the contrast, though, is between how those two covenants beckoned their respective participants to enter. What was the scene that you found at the beginning of each of these covenants or in the way these two covenants invited in their participants? Let's take a look at that contrast. He begins that in verses 18 through 24. The writer says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Beginning first with the moment of the inauguration of the Old Covenant in Exodus, you heard a reading this morning from Exodus chapter 20 in which this same moment is described. The writer in this case recounts that scene for us again, what it was like in that moment at the giving of the covenant at the base of the mountain. And as you probably know from the story, this mountain was a mountain of great terror for the people of Israel as they assembled with Moses to receive the law. It was blazing with fire, covered in smoke. It was shaking with thunder. Every now and then an earthquake would come from the mountain. And if you've ever been in an earthquake, a really bad one, they're terrifying. Imagine them just rolling off this mountain one after another. And then when God did speak, his voice sounded like a trumpet. And it was so fierce that the writer reminds us that the crowd at the time couldn't bear to hear it. They literally begged Moses, make it stop. We don't want to hear that anymore. Furthermore, When they all met around that mountain, God forbid that anyone should ever come near that mountain other than Moses. And no one even could touch it. Not even an animal could approach onto the base of that mountain or else they'd be destroyed. That was the rule God set. Last of all, Moses, even Moses is so terrified by what he saw that he declared that he himself was full of fear. That was the experience for the people of God as they were beckoned by God to enter into that relationship under the old covenant. Now, the writer has given us that scene in our memory so he can draw a comparison between the circumstances under which that covenant was offered to the people of Israel to the nature of the relationship we have in the new covenant. Consider the old for a moment. The old was a covenant that by its very nature exposed the sin of men. And the Bible says because of sin, it reflected death being required for sin. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, when speaking of the law in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says that the covenant of law, he calls it a ministry of death. That's Paul's term for the old covenant, for the law. A ministry of death. Why? Because its purpose in the economy of God was to reveal sin and the necessity of death because of sin. That was its chief purpose. A ministry of death. Because by the law of God, all of us stand condemned and our sin is revealed in front of a holy and just God. And that generates terror in the heart of anyone who understands what sin requires. And therefore, when the time came to give this law, the climate surrounding the giving of the law, the inauguration of the old covenant was a climate that mirrored the spiritual impact of that covenant. 
That was the way the people of Israel knew the Lord, their God, through that covenant. A God who is just in bringing condemnation for sin. And a law that revealed the fact that men were due judgment because they could not meet the terms of the law. Now I want you to notice throughout those verses, though, look what the writer says over and over again. He's careful to point out that the New Testament believer, that's you and I, of course, did not enter into the new covenant in this way. You notice he says, you did not come to a mountain like this. You did not hear these words. You did not see God appear on a mountain. You did not see that mountain shake. You did not feel dread. You have not known God as a source of condemnation, have you? You have not known God as a God who has put you in jeopardy, have you? You do not risk being stoned if you should touch the wrong place. You aren't trembling at the thought of Christ's second coming, are you? You aren't afraid to go boldly before the throne with your petitions, are you? Why is your feeling about God and about such things, why is it so different than the way the Old Testament or the way the the nation of Israel understood God from their perspective under the Old Covenant? Well, the writer gives us the contrast. Look at verses 22 through 24 again. He reminds us, when the Lord revealed himself to us in the New Covenant, he came from Mount Zion. That refers to the heavenly mountain on which the heavenly tabernacle stands today outside our sight in heaven. And then the writer goes on, in that place, there is the father with the myriad of angels. And as well, there stands this great assembly of all the church saints. And there is Christ, of course, at the right hand of the father, seated as our judge. And then lastly, all the Old Testament saints made righteous by faith are there. What do you see in your mind's eye as you think of this? You see this welcoming corporate gathering, don't you? Would you have any fear to enter into that place? I mean, considering who's already there? No, it's like a homecoming. The thought of entering into that place is is appealing. It's inviting and it's intended to be. Everyone in the new covenant can approach, can touch, so to speak, can dwell with the Lord. All that harmony, all that joy, all that fellowship made possible by the better blood of Christ. Abel's blood, you may remember the story, when he comes upon the death of Abel and he confronts his brother Cain about it. He says, I hear the blood of your brother crying out to me. But the sense of it, of course, is crying out to me for retribution, for justice, for something to be done about this death. But Christ's blood isn't screaming out for that. It covers the sin so that now that blood is inviting us in as opposed to screaming for some kind of retribution to be done for his death. The new covenant, friends, welcomes us to approach, while the old covenant warned us, you better stay away. The new covenant solves the problem of that division, whereas the old covenant just accentuated it and made it clear. We have no fear. We have no worry of condemnation, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have peace. Paul says in Ephesians 2.13 and onward, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, there's that concept again, far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, speaking of Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So that he himself might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Do you see the writer's point in these examples? Before the new covenant was revealed to men, 
their experience with God necessarily involved a sense of condemnation and fear and distance. Through the law, they knew sin was their barrier to any fellowship with God. And everything about the law reinforced that truth. Even just the fact that men were separated from the glory of God by the walls of the tabernacle served to illustrate that you can't get close to him. And if you even wanted to put something in front of God, you had to go through a priest to get to him. Every encounter required blood sacrifice. Every appeal or approach had to be done through some intercessor. Every appearance of God involved fear and trembling in the people of God. That was the experience of the old. But by Christ's blood, all of that's been turned upside down. And friends, isn't it the case that sometimes we take that for granted? Never having lived on the other side of that line, for example, we don't realize that we don't live in fear of the God who saved us, that he spoke peace to us. He leads us not by fear, but through the spirit who loves us. Rather than being an enemy of God and worrying about that, he calls us friend, Scripture says. And he comes to make his home within us by his spirit. He declares there is no condemnation. He invites us to serve him in joy and without burden. And he assembles around us a great family of believers who will be with us into eternity. The sense is so opposite. And when you have these two alternatives, if you could, if it were possible for you to retreat back into the old way, would anyone take that over what they have in the new covenant? Would you voluntarily leave the new covenant, at least in terms of practicing it, I mean, would you voluntarily walk out of what God has done in exposing you to himself through the new covenant and take up the old covenant again? In some form, who would prefer that? Notice the writer says plainly, you have as an audience already come to the new covenant, past tense. And then at the same time, he says they have not come to the Lord through the means of the old covenant. But the reality of his day was that there were some in the church doing this very thing. They were going backward. They were retreating. Returning to, in the case of this writer, practicing Judaism. Why? Well, really for only one reason. So that they could fit in to the culture once again. And in so doing, avoid the persecution that had begun on Christians, on Christianity. They could blend in, become part of the culture, the norm. Just get along. Not rock the boat, not ruffle any feathers, not make anybody upset. Well, except for God. Except for God. The only way you can turn back is by leaving the relationship of grace. And, of course, when I say leave it, I don't mean spiritually, for you can't do that, thankfully. But you can leave it experientially. You can choose not to be a participant in it, even though God is still in you. For even when you are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. When you do that, you place yourself back in a state Much like the old, the old covenant, in which you have an expectation now of God's wrath. Consider that for a minute. The relationship that was true under the old, one of condemnation and judgment, becomes now the nature of your relationship with God once again. Though not for salvific purposes, we're not saying for the sake of where you will be when you die, but for the sake of how he will respond to your life, to your days on earth and in some future judgment. There are consequences for disobedience to the living God. And so ironically, he's saying, though you have the new, you turn back from it, you have now no expectation except what used to be typified under the old, that is, condemnation again. 
Look what he says in verse 25. He says, see to it that you do not refuse he who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, well, how much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The problem with these believers is neatly summed up there in verse 25 at the very beginning. In verse 25, he says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Friends, God is always speaking. God is always speaking. He is never silent. He may not be talking to you about the topics that you have on your mind, but he is always speaking. He speaks first and foremost through his word. I've heard this said before, and I'm sure I'll hear it again. That believer who will say, you know, I haven't heard from God lately. Or I even find those who say, God doesn't speak to me. He always speaks to other people, but he's never speaking to me. Or he's not speaking to me right now or things of that sort. Friends, that is a completely false statement. As long as you open the Bible and read it, he's speaking to you. If nowhere else, at least there. Every time you open the page of Scripture, you heard from the Lord. Now, the question is, were you listening? And more importantly, do you respond? Do you respond to the counsel of what you hear? Notice the writer says in verse 25, they were refusing the Lord. Now, refusing, would you not agree? Refusing implies you heard. You had something, you just didn't like it. The Greek word for refuse is interesting here. It's the same word. That's translated earlier in verse 19 as begged. Remember when he said that the nation of Israel was begging that they don't have to hear from God anymore at the mountain? He's using the same word here because what he's saying is don't do what they did. Don't plug your ears as they did when they said, I can't hear him anymore. He's too much for me. I can't hear him anymore. Well, Christians do virtually the same thing when we refuse him who is speaking through his word. Don't want to submit to what he says in the word. Don't want to take the counsel of the spirit. You were refusing to listen. And to follow. And usually it's because you don't have an eternal perspective. Can you imagine, think about literally standing in front of Christ on your judgment day. After you've been resurrected, we're standing there. It's the time for Christ to evaluate the works of all those who serve him. This is not a judgment for whether you go to heaven or not, right? We're talking here about the believer's judgment. But you're standing in front of him and he asks you to do something. Can you imagine saying no? Or worse, how about this? Can you imagine doing this? Nah, 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 nah. I won't hear you. Nah, 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 nah. I mean, no, of course not. I mean, it's ridiculous. And yet, when you refuse the counsel of God's word, or when you disobey the leading of the Spirit, or even, I would add, when you disregard the wise and godly counsel of church friends, family, leaders, etc., those in the body who God has put in your life to help you, you might as well just transport your mind to the moment I just described, because that's what you're doing. The only thing missing is Christ in the flesh. But that's coming. So this leads the writer to make... One more comparison between old and new. He asked his readers to consider what came of those under the old covenant who failed to heed the instructions of the Lord. Now, he doesn't take time to explain or to give examples of all the ways that happened. Because, friends, the whole books of Exodus and Numbers are nothing more than a recounting of everything that they said no to throughout their wanderings in the desert. So we couldn't spend the time on it. He just asked the question rhetorically because he knows his readers remember all that. 
Those in Israel who failed to hear and follow the Lord in the desert fell dead in the desert. Physically, they died, as the books of Exodus and Numbers remind us. They were in the presence, remember, they were in the presence of God's Shekinah glory on earth. They saw miraculous things. They saw the Lord respond time and time again. And as he spoke, what did they do? They plugged their ears. They refused to hear. And as a result, God's wrath burned against them and they fell in the desert. So the writer says, all right, you know this happened. Now I want you to imagine what God may be prepared to do to those who refuse him when they have a greater knowledge of him, a greater access to him, when he's speaking from heaven, in other words, from the throne room. He says, you know, in verse 26, he says, you know, the the Lord shook the mountain on the earth in Moses' day, but there will be another shaking of both heavens and earth. And he quotes from Haggai. Haggai writes about this future day in Chapter 2, verse 5, Haggai writes, As for the promise which I made to you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, said the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You notice Haggai, in his quote from the Lord, there's a comparison from the old and the new once again. In the future moment that he's speaking of, by the way, this is the moment of the second coming of Christ. The Lord's going to assemble all his people just as he assembled them at the mountain. In that future day, he's going to bring all the nations of the world around that holy mountain with all their wealth those who will dwell in the kingdom and all that wealth will go to the building of a greater temple, one that will exceed the glory of any that have come before it, one that the Lord will dwell. And the Lord says in that day, there will be this great shaking. He's speaking here of the judgment that comes upon the world. The shaking here is a reference to an accounting, a time of reckoning. If I had somebody here that was hiding something from me in their pockets and I could pick them up by their feet, assuming I was strong enough to do this, and hold them upside down and go shake, 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 and everything that's in them falls out on the ground. That's what he's talking about. A full accounting, in other words. No chance to escape. He says, I shook the mountain, physically speaking, but in the future I'm going to shake heavens and earth, in other words. He makes it a metaphor. When he says at the end there that that God is a consuming fire, he said earlier, God is a consuming fire. He's referring to the very same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he speaks of that moment in which the believer will receive a judgment from God. The judgment seat. The point is that God puts everyone to scrutiny sooner or later. Certainly as a believer, our scrutiny is a far different one than the unbeliever. But it's still a scrutiny. And that reality of God's consuming fire is coming. Knowing these truths, what is our reasonable response? The writer makes that conclusion in verse 28. Therefore, he says, meaning because of what we know about the Lord and our covenant, what should we do? He says, therefore, let us live up to that blessing. In gratitude, knowing what's been given to us. Friends, we can't let the world press in and disturb our confidence, first and foremost, in our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's not changing. That's a gift given to you by God. It's not going away. But don't let deprivation, peer pressure, discomfort, lusts, desires, ambitions 
Don't let that lead you away from heavenly blessings, heavenly riches. Don't let persecution or threats let you fear those who can do nothing more than kill the body, but they cannot take what's in heaven. Don't let illness or relationship disappointments or loneliness drive you to forget that the Lord lives in you, that the Lord loves you and will never forsake you, and that you are a brief period of time away from being with him forever. And don't let the enemy drown out the truth of the word through lies that promote these fears and concerns and desires. It's common today, as you probably have been paying attention in the news, it's common today. And it'll be worse, I'm I'm sure. Great pressure to be put on us to accept a new definition of family or marriage or new definitions of what is good or right in the world. These things are only going to continue to be impressed upon us. And while we try to live in peace with all men as far as it depends on us, nevertheless, there'll come some point where the enemy is going to ask you to choose what you believe in. And it may come down to persecution. It may come down to a loss of a of a position in school or at a job or who knows what it'll involve. We'll make the decisions we have to make in light of what options are put in front of us. And we'll do our best to show love and peace in the process. But at the end of it all, where do you look to for your reward? Who are you trying to please? What is it you are trying to do with the life God has given you to serve him in? The writer says our reasonable response is to give God acceptable service in gratitude, in awe and reverence for who he is. Living in gratitude is a tricky thing. When you say to someone live in gratitude, the first thought that enters most people's minds is gratitude for what I have now. Gratitude for what I possess And of course, if I'm unhappy with what I possess, then I find that a difficult thing to do. Friends, who isn't unhappy to some degree at some level in some way with what they have in their life? Has anyone ever been 100 percent contented with everything about their life? I don't believe anyone has been, not even Paul. Paul said he lived with contentment. What was he content with, though? If you read on in Philippians, he makes it clear he's content with what he has in heaven. He's content with what is coming. Live in gratitude, in other words, knowing what will be yours in eternity. Live with gratitude for the faith that you've been given. Live in gratitude for what Christ did on the cross. Live in gratitude for the things that are certain and eternal. And care nothing for what you have here. Because that will always be disappointing in the sense of what our flesh desires. Take Christ's attitude with you everywhere. That though Christ had everything, he gave it up so that he could serve the Father in obedience. And because he obeyed, The father raised him up and exalted him and gave him everything, Paul says in Philippians. And after he's done everything necessary to reconcile us with God, he only asks us that we serve him to our last breath. Let me end with a with an anecdote that I hope illustrates this better than anything I could say. It's a story of a man named John Harper. He was a Scottish evangelist. And here's his story. He was born into a Christian family in May 29th in the year 1872. He became a Christian 13 years later, and he'd already started preaching by age 17. He received training at the Baptist Pioneer Mission in London. And in 1896, he founded a church. It's now known as the Harper Memorial Church, which began with 25 worshipers, but had grown to 500 members by the time he left it 13 years later. When asked about his doctrine, he stated it simply the word of God. While his spiritual growth followed a fairly direct uphill path, as you can see, his personal life wasn't that smooth. 
When he was only about two and a half years old, he fell into a well and he almost drowned. At age 26, he was nearly swept out to sea. At age 32, he found himself on a leaky ship in the middle of the Mediterranean. You see a theme here? He should have stayed away from water. But most tragically, his wife died after only a brief marriage, leaving him alone with his daughter, Nana. In 1912, Harper was newly called as the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, a name you probably recognize. And he was traveling there to take the position with his six-year-old daughter on a ship called the Titanic. After the ship struck an iceberg and began to sink, he got Nana into a lifeboat, but apparently made no effort to follow her. Instead, he ran through the ship yelling, women, children, and unsaved into the lifeboats. Survivors reported that he then began witnessing to anyone who would listen. He continued preaching even after he jumped into the water and was clinging to a piece of wreckage. He had given his life jacket to another man. Harper's final moments were recounted four years later at a meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, by a man who said, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar of wood that awful night, the tide brought Mr. Harper of Glasgow, also on a piece of wreck, near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away, but strange to say, brought him back. A little while later, and he said, are you saved now? (laughs) No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after, he went down. And there, alone in the night, and with two miles of water under me, I believed. And I am John Harper's last convert. He was also one of the only six people plucked out of the water in lifeboats that night. The other 1,522, including Harper, died. That's an extraordinary story of an extraordinary man under very unusual circumstances, to say the least. But doesn't he illustrate the point? Serve in awe and reverence. Serve in gratitude. Caring nothing for this world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, not all of us, Father, will be called to be what Harper was, but all of us are called, Father, to strive for it. And I pray, Father, that in your word you've taught us that we cannot turn our backs on a God who is all-consuming and expect nothing to happen. We cannot mock you in our disobedience, and we cannot expect that a day of reckoning will not come. What we do know, Father, is we've been saved from the penalty of sin by the faith we have that the blood of Christ has washed clean our sins. That we hold no worries of hell or condemnation because of that faith. That we've been freed from the law, from its constraints, from its condemnation. That we serve a God who is just and merciful, righteous and holy. And so we have a noble message and a noble mission And a God who has called us to serve all these things, Father, we carry with us. And so, Father, there is no excuse for sin, no excuse for rebellion, no excuse for refusing to listen. And we offer none this morning. We ask only, Father, that for the time we have left, you would once again, in mercy, call us to serve you. Forgetting what has gone before and looking forward only, we walk in faith. Let it be our testimony, Father, that on this day, if not on any other, we heard the message. 
and we wanted to obey. Thank you, Father, for that message. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.